sound exhausted. I'm dealing with a sinus infection slash ear infections. I feel uh, all right. I'm, so I'm doing the true academic thing of like, I'm so overworked, but it's all my own doing, so I'm fine. I'm pretty sure the sinus infection is my own doing because I have overworked myself. That's Fair enough. With. Yeah, yeah. The doctor, when she looked in my ears yesterday, her response was, ew. <laughs> <laughs> there was that much fluid. <laughs> so, you know, it's bad when you gross out a doctor who's probably seen a lot of stuff. I remember one semester when I was in grad school, I finally went to the doctor after finals were all over and they were like, holy shit, why didn't you come in here a month ago? And they gave me a Z-Pack. They gave me, that's prednisone, right? Or that's Zithromax. It's Zithromax, hence the Z. Yep, okay. (laughs) Science, logic, whatever. They gave me prednisone. They gave me that. They gave me the other. They gave me all the things. And I was like, wow. I didn't need to feel like shit for a whole month. I had no, I was just fighting through it thinking it was usual stuff. I think I'm going to be able to turn this into a good introduction to our guest today. How so? So the doctor expressed disgust at my condition and our two guests today, Dr. Amber Wudich and Dr. Alex Brewis, who have co-authored a book, the title of which I cannot find at the moment. Lazy, crazy, and disgusting. Exactly. Stigma so t- and the undoing of global health. So there we go. I disgusted my doctor with my state of health today, which I'm going to somehow relate to differing forms of human disgust at things, such as open defecation, which I know is a topic of the book, and stigma my at things. My dogs do in my house. It is disgusting. All, all the time. But there's another reason we brought them on today, not just because of this book, because we're also promoting the the AJHB special issue on water insecurity. So Amber was one of the co-instructors with Lance Gravely of the National Science Foundation funded QualQuant Methods Camp. And I went to it my second year as a assistant professor for the text analysis course. So that's where I met Amber. And I remember her telling me about her research, but I remember her telling me she studied water insecurity and was starting a new project on it. And at the time, I had no idea what water insecurity was. So I had this, either one, I have this mental memory of her telling me she was studying pirates who steal water. And that was what (laughs) I interpreted water insecurity to be. Or water pirates. She actually was studying water smuggling and piracy. And it's a horrible, tragic thing that we should not be laughing at. True. It is hard to not conjure up cartoon pirates. I feel like my first real introduction to water insecurity, this is again, like, same as you, not really understanding it or really knowing anything about it, came from the movie The Big Short that talked about the economic crisis of 2008 and how the housing market completely collapsed. And one of the guys who made a huge amount of money off of it was because he he had a mind for being able to analyze market data. And he saw that there was this huge bubble and that was going to crash. And at the end of the entire movie, they give like a little update on what he's doing now. One, he got audited by the FBI like dozens of times, but he also offered up his assistance to the government to say, hey, do you want to know how I predicted this would happen? Let me share it with you. And they never, ever interviewed him, but he got audited multiple times, not by the FBI, by the IRS. But he completely left the world of you know stocks and trading and all of that. And what small investment that he does now is in water. 
because he is predicting that water insecurity is a massive thing and being able to have that commodity and control that commodity is going to be a large part of our future and likely very traumatic and drastic. Well, it makes sense. We often have joked that sort of missed the point. The joke this last year was that water insecurity was the new sleep. And that was because the year before the symposium at HBA was on sleep and this year was on water insecurity. And the year Mm -hmm. before it was breast milk is the new cortisol because people were studying breast milk and we had a symposium symposium on that. But the reality here is that, yeah, given our the Malthusian ceiling, which we continually seem to keep hitting as a human population and surpassing, the critical reduction of resources is just going to get worse. So we were just talking about how disgusting she is and how we uh, want to avoid her as our segue to talk it about It was. And I will tell you this, that the doctor literally said, ew, when she looked into my ears and saw all the fluid buildup from the sinus infection. So there's our segue into disgust and into the amazing book you two have (laughs) co-authored. Anyway, thank you both so much for joining the Sausage of Science. Alex, welcome back since you have interviewed with us before. And Amber, welcome for the first time on the Sausage of Science. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. And we always start with the same question for everybody. And Alex, you have answered this in in a previous interview with you. So we're going to focus on Amber with this one. Basically, how you got to where you are. What's your origin story in anthropology? What got you involved? Uh, What was your journey like? Yeah, I love it when you ask people this question. When I've listened to other podcasts, I learn things about people I've written lots of papers with that I never knew. So in that spirit, I'll go back to the beginning. I grew up in a place called Miramar that's on the Miami-Dade County line in Florida. And I grew up in a very homogenous environment where we had really strong social and sharing networks that organized everything from hurricane response to childcare. But it wasn't totally idyllic because my parents, who were both active in their unions and were atheists, and my mom was a feminist and my dad was a vegan, they didn't quite fit in in this community. And they always told me never, ever to talk about any of that to people in our community. And even though these are people that I loved, and so early on, I think I was really profoundly puzzled by how social structure and networks interlock with cultural values and norms. And then later, I was very fortunate because in Florida at that time, we had an amazing public school system, and I tested into a countywide advanced program. And went was bused to the school with this very we started college classes in sixth grade and that was the first time that i was introduced to socioeconomic inequality having gone from a very homogenous working class community i was suddenly the poor kid and that was a whole new set of experiences that kind of enriched my understanding about how these networks of sharing and reciprocity work and how cultural values fit into them. And so when I got to the University of Florida, I was very fortunate that my first semester, I went to Russ Bernard, who's an anthropological methodologist. I went to his office and I was like, I'm gonna be an anthropologist when I grow up. And he, right, let's do this. And so he, I've been collaborating with him for 24 years and one of the most important relationships in my life and one of the reasons I believe so much in mentorship. And so he introduced me to Chris McCarthy Um, Russ taught me to write and to think and to be an anthropologist and Chris taught me to do research and do run big projects and do analysis and so at that time I mean obviously I had these interests in inequality and social networks and cultural values but I knew I was really interested in economic deprivation and at that time in the sort of mid 90s it was not in style to be thinking about economic dimensions of cultural beliefs So what people today are calling materiality was super out of style, right? 
and so I wanted to find a research question where the importance of material elements of how people exchange resources couldn't be denied, right? Like you couldn't say, oh, it's just perception or it's just an interpretation. It's like, no, people need this thing or they're going to die. So that was water. Mm. So I just want to point out for our listeners who may not be familiar with all these names, Ref Bernard literally wrote the book, the big big fat book on field methods in anthropology and is the expert. In, and now Amber is co-editing field methods with Russ, I believe. Yes. Yes. Journal field methods. And uh, Chris McCarty is expertise is in social network analysis and has written literally the book on how to conduct social network analysis, which is huge and increasingly important methodology in anthropology. And as I was telling Kara right before we started, you were one of my teachers for the text analysis course at the NSF funded QualQuant thing. And I have this, I fear, distorted memory of you telling me what you study. So we need to clarify lest some misinformation goes out. I guess I didn't know what water security was. And so I have this conjured memory. Or you told me you were studying pirates, water pirates. I'm thinking it's the former. You may have completely made up these pirates. (laughs) I could have told you I study water pirates. Um, And it would be true. Okay. I have studied informal water vendors. And in Spanish, one of the ways they call those are piratas. Aha. Uh-huh. So technically, I could have told you that I studied water pipes. So is that an illegal form? Like when you say informal water vendors, is that actually illegal within the governmental system or looked down upon? So I would categorize them as unregulated. Yeah, there's some uh, smuggling going on. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to relate the pirate thing really hard. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just... I, I would say that, yes, these are um, communities that were settled without any legal um, permission to be settled, right, informal settlements. They do not have permission from their municipalities to get water service, and so somehow they need to get water. And so a business that people create is to get water without permission and to sell it to them without supervision. Okay, interesting. Right, this is, I mean... So all around the world, you see this, you see it in the United States as well. And it's a a way that people cope with living in these unregulated zones. I think Um, you're being generous to my memory, but, 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 um, because we were conjuring up like cartoon pirates, basically stealing barrels of water on water. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Uh, the reality is that I want people to be able to say legitimately that I study water pirates, and I'm just bending over backwards to make that to be. It's great branding, if we're honest. Uh, so water insecurity was very early on in your career. Uh, it kind of started out that way. Uh, Alex, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got involved in water insecurity. Uh, by jogging behind Amber. Mostly. uh, I first met Amber, gosh, 15 years ago when she was a postdoc. Uh, She was a postdoc at Arizona State University where I was a, I just arrived as a full professor at the time to develop new health anthropology courses and degrees. And she was working on a project that she called the Ethnohydrology Study, which was part of her postdoc looking in the Phoenix area and how people uh, we're thinking about water, and I thought, dear, I've ever heard. I wish I'd come up with that. And the second best thing is to just follow along behind her for a while and see what <laughs> and 
15 years later, we've been working together on that project. It's now turned into the global ethnohydrology project, not just the Phoenix ethnohydrology project. And so all my forays into water research, which, you know, make up a good chunk of my portfolio now, are really just following Amber's lead and learning from her in, her, in, what, in what is really her area of expertise. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I can bring a different set of skills to that with my human biology background. So, but mostly I just do it for fun um, <laughs> and for camaraderie and all the other really good reasons that we start learning new things when we do research. And I would just jump in and say, although most of my work has been focused on water, I'm interested in bigger theoretical questions that Alex and I share, like how unjust and inequitable institutions produce resource scarcity and how mm -hmm. that impacts human health. And so one of the things that I think both Alex and I share is a is that it's good to have strong expertise on a topic, but if you keep other topics in the mix, it enriches your theoretical view of the mm. field. And so um, just the way that she kind of comes and works with me on water, I go and work with her on obesity. And she's always in the lead in those projects, but thinking about obesity and thinking about body norms um, and bionormalcy enriches my work on water. So obviously, Kara and I work pretty closely together, and we have a similar interest in each other's work. And so for the sake of our working relationship, and I think on the side of asking people about their research, we, we have a, a, a sub-series called Hackademics, where we're interested in hacks for succeeding in academic academia. And I think your, your collaboration is enviable. Like having someone you can work with and have that sort of camaraderie and be inspired and have fun with while doing serious research is all of our dream. So I, I just wondered then if this can segue to the how you came to be working, how you how you do this to produce a book and what that was like and how that came together. Lazy, crazy, disgusting stigma and the undoing of global health came out of us kind of talking across our different projects um, over many years and actually and this is part of where the the form of the efficiency and interesting part of the way we collaborate is is that it really was amber was the lead author to begin with in the book and at some point it just made sense for me to take over so it's hard to kind of explain where it started and where it finished um, because it really was like a two halves of the same brain operation uh, but it really was an attempt to think about what Amber was just talking about, the really the big picture things that link what the two of us had kind of been doing in our own careers that had kind of come into the shared space where we'd been thinking together about a whole range of issues and then thinking about where that took us next. And in this case was really thinking about what it means to be socially accepted and socially rejected, how global health as an enterprise fits in with that and how that in turn a sort of social phenomena feeds back into how global health is done. I guess to broaden it out just a little bit, because you two seem to work very, very well together, and maybe any thoughts you have about fostering such a really excellent academic research collaborative relationship. Alex, you kind of talked about it a little bit where you just decided to follow Amber along with her work, and then Amber has learned so much about the obesity that's informed her work. But do you have any kind of like step back thoughts or tips about fostering such a wonderful research and we might be overstepping, but a friendship as well, uh, and how that works. Thinking about this conversation we were going to have, 
Um, Alex and I were talking about this academic marriage question, right? Because mm. sometimes people ask us about our academic marriage and it's always awkward, just like when someone asks you about the person you're married to. Um, and so I was like, we should just embrace the awkwardness. So I think Alex will jump in. But one thing that's important is that Alex and I both have family structures that are very similar. So mm. she and I are the primary income earners for our household. We both have spouses her husband was a competitive sharpshooter and my husband was a soccer player and they both decided to retire to be the main people raising our kids um, when our kids were little. I think we lean into the academy in the same way, right? And that helps because she understands where I'm coming from and I understand where she's coming from. I think also we have very complementary skill sets because mm -hmm. I'm trained as really as a cultural anthropologist and she really is much stronger on biology and demography and so always when we're coming to a question we know right away that we're going to look at it differently we'll have different tools to bring to the table and that that's productive hmm. yeah Alex what do you think so I always feel that we've just been so lucky mm. uh, to be in an environment where we were able to develop um, you know our collaborative style over many years and a structure that was accommodating to that and actually rewarded it you know in terms of the particular department we were in and the people we were working with but it really is very precious and I think I could easily have gone my whole career without being able to get in a situation where I had people that I really could trust as collaborators to the extent that I do with Amber. And we have other people in our team as well that we have, you know, similar collaborative relationships, even if they're not quite as intense. I think one of the things that's a bit different about ours is actually the level of intensity. So we have two books coming out next year, a book coming out this year. We, I think, so we've kind of got to the point that we're writing in multiple authored articles through the year that you know, we're variously working with a, in a whole array of different teams. So it's a level of complexity of the collaboration that's kind of unusual because we're not even in one lab kind of working on the same problem. It's scattered across many different projects. So, you know, for me, I feel very lucky with the arrangement. It's kind of interesting comparing it to a marriage. It's similar in some ways in that you are really become good, at, your, your fortunes become good together after a fashion and that becomes beneficial for everybody. But in another way, it's, an, it's also an efficiency mechanism in a way that a marriage is not, right? I would not be able to run my marriage the way that <laughs> I manage my relationship with them. I wish I could. <laughs> yeah. For not, an easier thing to engage with that one of the things that binds us is that we have quite different sensibilities on some levels i'm actually the softy and she's the tough one which people <laughs> always get completely inverse they read that wrong but we have very very similar core values and are very strongly um held so you know we really are in the same place on scientific integrity and I think that makes it possible to get through. You know, there's always going to be things you have to deal with, the two of you. When you're doing that level of productivity on that many different projects, there's always things that come up basically every day that require you to trust the other person's decision on your behalf. And I think the fact that we share those really core value, values about what it means to be a scientist, what it means to be a scholar, what it means to work with communities, what it means to work with students, the responsibilities, where we're prepared to cut corners for efficiency and where we're absolutely not. And the fact that, you know, we kind of understand each other means that we can be really, really efficient in making decisions for each other. Part of why we can, we can move so much stuff forward is because we have a real shorthand way of decision-making. Mm. But we can talk every single day, pretty much, in order to keep the machine hmm. going. Amber? 
we have an enormous amount of trust. When things go wrong, I know implicitly, like, well, Alex wouldn't have done that. So the problem must be somewhere else in the process or an opportunity comes up and I'm like, oh, well, Alex would be okay with doing this. So I'm going to say that, you know, you should check with her, but I think you should put her in this role. Um, the other thing I always think about is that between us, we've written, I mean, we're writing four books and we've done at least 50 papers. So I always think of the, like the two of us are a full professor between ourselves, mm. right? That person, like other friends joke like, oh, is that person junior too? I'm like, no, I think she's somewhere in between me and Alex. <laughs> um, and, and that person has sort of like her own sensibilities and, and contributions in my mind. One of the most interesting things to me of late to observe about our working relationship is we started off in completely different places in the academy. Right, so when I started working with Amber, I was on the search committee that hired her, I believe, and then I was her director for eight years in the school. So I was mentoring her from all the way from when she was from a postdoc, mm. actually, all the way up through assistant professor, through associate professor, and to full professor over that time. It was a much shorter time for her than most people, but still, you know, a good chunk of her career. You know, I was very much in the position of being much more senior. Now she really is completely my peer, the same rank that I'm at at the universities. And in the process of me moving out of administration, she's now much more connected at the university than I am. So it's kind of like our, a lot of our power dynamics have really shifted. Hmm in the last couple of years and we've survived that now really fun for me to really be able to just watch her kind of fly by me and so I'm kind of excited about what happens next I just want to reinforce how good of a point that is mm. and it's one that I learned the hard way and that I'm trying to be conscious of all the time is in the those collaborations the power differential generally means that one person has more urgency about certain things than the other and that can really sour things quickly so it's impressive that you've worked through that and have, have developed yourself to that position. And one of the, the very recent collaborations and one of the reasons we are doing this interview uh, was about water insecurity, which kind of culminated during the uh, HBA meetings this past year uh, for the Pearl Memorial Lecture that you gave, Amber, about water insecurity. We want to promote the special issue that just came out this past month. And so we were wondering with the symposium that you organized with Asher Rosinger over at Penn State, if you could tell us a little bit about that feature article that you wrote for AJHB, as well as your talk for the Pearl lecture. Yeah, and just, I mean, I, Alex and Asher were the organizers, but to just give a little background, because I think it might be interesting to people, is that we know Asher because we tried to recruit him as our postdoc, and he ah. turned us down. Yeah. Gasp! <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we we don't take no answer, so we'll find some other way to sucker you in. <laughs> No, but we do have this philosophy that when people come to us as prospective PhD students or prospective postdocs, they're in the discipline with us forever. Yeah. And whether they come to work with us or whether they're collaborators in different ways, we're all working on the same scientific problems together. And it's exciting to have, you know, these lifelong collaborators. And so Asher went on to the CDC and then to Penn State. And so he and Alex organized um, the symposium and they asked me to give the Pearl Lecture. And that was very exciting for me because um, if anybody is working on water, you'll know that I labored in obscurity for many years because water was really not a hot topic in anthropology and certainly not in biocultural anthropology. And so when I was being trained, there was a lot of work on irrigation, but really not any work that looked at water and human health with a couple of important sections like Linda Whiteford and Barbara Rose Johnson, right? And so um, a lot of the time I was kind of having to come up with conceptualizations and measurements and theories all on my own, you know, and 
I always knew that biocultural um, scholarship was sort of like the holy grail. Like if we could just get this research question on the radar of biocultural scholars, we would be able to make very rapid advancement theoretically. And so I think Alex to me was so important to moving into that space, right? Because Alex is so well connected with the biocultural world. And so our collaboration helped us begin to open up these questions with people like Asher and other, Sarah Young, others who've been on this podcast, right? And so to have the opportunity to sort of speak to the HBA at a time when there was a critical mass of scholars, um, Barbara Fabrata and Amanda Thompson are starting to work on water, right, was, was awesome for me. Very, very exciting. Yeah, I see those increasing connections where folks that we've associated with other areas food security, for instance, or developmental adaptation. I think this is the nature of my initial misunderstanding is I had no concept for what water security even meant when you first introduced it. And now you guys organized this symposium at HBA. There's tremendous groundswell of, of folks doing this important work. And as Kara pointed out, before you guys got on, and you guys can speak to this more with the increasing population size of the world, this is going to just get more critical. Yes. Unfortunately, seems to be a long-standing hot topic. In our previous conversation with Alex, we actually ran out of time. We wanted to talk about some of the, the work that was then coming out and has now come out and is also in this book, where in the broader scope, you're looking at the impacts of stigma across a variety of different contexts. And one of those was critiquing a model that maybe in anthropology isn't super popular, but I know in evolutionary psychology and human behavioral ecology, the idea of the behavioral immune system that people behave in ways to avoid contaminants has uh, been in vogue. And you critique this model and did some exceptional cross-cultural uh, data collection to do this. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and what you found. So, I mean, the behavioral immune system idea is basically that uh, the way that humans organize themselves provides protection against disease, particularly if you have mechanisms for figuring out who to stay away from. Um, so there's the disgust response, but there's also these sort of social boundaries that can be set up when people get pushed into categories of the types of people you shouldn't go near. That is um, through stigma. And, you know, obviously it makes a lot of sense in small-scale societies that you encounter people and you've got to figure out whether it's safe to be around them or not. You know, so a reasonable idea point of view, the behavioral immune system makes a lot of sense. So it's not really the idea itself. It's the application of the idea into health programming that we're particularly concerned about. It conceptualizes stigma as a positive force or a potentially positive force within health, uh, designing health interventions and so on. And Even just an acceptable cost. Right. So that's where the problem is. And we've been really trying to demonstrate through our work and that of other people that are doing ethnographic work like ours, that the cost is potentially extremely high and always borne by the people at the bottom of the social ladder or the economic ladder, you know, the cost runs downhill very quickly. Mm. So it's not just a practical problem, but it is, it makes, you know, it's highly likely that interventions are less likely to be sustainable over the long term if they're socially causing new social divisions. But also just from a moral perspective, if there's any chance that it's, particularly if the costs are accruing only to the most vulnerable sectors of societies, then, you know, then that's something you have to think really, really carefully about before you invoke that as a strategy. I was just going to say you could see this with Ebola and now again with coronavirus, right? Mm. This playing out very clearly. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good point and, and one we could unpack, but I wanted to, to draw attention to one of the examples in your book, because although there there have been some already some some good pieces about stigmatizing people just of Chinese ancestry mm-hmm. because of coronavirus. You you wrote about data from Mozambique where you found one third, this is in chapter right out of the gate in chapter one, one third of the people didn't agree that toilet use would improve community health standards. And I think most listeners would actually find this astounding, but then by going in, some of the public health efforts of stigmatizing people find that not everyone agrees and the tactics used are ones that might surprise folks and are are gonna be, I guess, anathema to a constructive course of action, to put it mildly. Is that correct? Yeah, so, I th- well, I think one thing is just to appreciate that uh, these community sanitation efforts are trying to get people to not practice open defecation because it is a sanitary issue, right? So particularly in the more crowded areas get, it's it's not good to have people stepping in other people's feces. It's not good to have, you know, kind of households and so on. But on the other side, you've also got to think about or at least consider how people think about the efforts to get everyone to use a toilet and not everyone in the world thinks that a toilet is a good idea and with good reason. So, you know, there's the Mozambique example in the book where we were working on a USAID project and around coastal adaptation, AKA climate change and climate change adaptation. And they were trying to get people to build elevated toilets um, so that when floods came, um, when the flooding, flooding happened, it wouldn't just spread feces all over the place, which is obviously, you know, a major contaminant risk. Really, for an ethnographer, one of the starting points of that conversation is what's the deal with open defecation? Why are people Mm. doing it? And in this case, you know, in the Mozambique case, uh, people would walk, you know, a third third of a mile to a mile every morning and every evening down to the mangroves, and there they would do their business. And it was a very social and pleasant time of the Mm. day. You walked down there with your friends, you did your business, you walked back. It was a really nice constitutional, you know, constitutional experience for people. And, you know, the sea comes in. And so the idea, you know, people had this idea that this was not just clean, but also pleasant and enjoyable. And if that's your headspace about how you defecate, sitting in a small square smelly box by yourself mm-hmm. is not anywhere near the same experience um, for a human being. So then um, when, when I was working in, in Kiribati in Micronesia many years ago, there was a set of aid folk that came through and built toilets in the middle of the atoll. And this is an atoll where you've got, you know, the water lands is just feet below the surface. You know, on that particular island, people would go down at, you know, to the, the, the lagoon side of the island and they would do their business below high tide and then the tide would come in and take it out. And they were really distressed by the idea that mm-hmm. you would put all your poop in one place and just pile it up. Um, and I think they could see, like, they know how, they, they put a hole in the water all the time. They know where it is. So that people were really grossed out by the idea. And so, I mean, you know, uh, and I think, you know, Amber can maybe talk to this a bit more, but toilets in themselves, if you look at them logically, while a great solution to sanitation issues are kind of a, a disgusting concept right? Amber, tell us about how gross toilets are and piles of poop. Yeah, well, if you think about the sort of cultural meanings constructed around toilets and piles of poop, you can see that it's a difficult thing to sell to people, really. (laughs) (laughs) How do you? I mean, when it comes to these public health initiatives of trying to institute some form of toilet or just centralized location so that it can be removed, 
I mean, how often are they actually successful? And the ones that are, what do they do right compared to the ones that aren't successful? Great question. So that's actually one of the big motivations that we had for writing this book because there is a not very old approach called community-led total sanitation that has been started in India and has been picked up all around the world. And what they decided to do was that they didn't need any investment. They didn't need to spend any money. All they had to do is go to poor communities that didn't have toilets and convince them how disgusting. And then they'd want to build the toilets themselves and use them, right? So you can imagine how this would appeals to the international development apparatus, right? All you have to do is pay some outsiders to go into communities and convince them that they're disgusting and then they'll do everything, right? It's, it turns out that you can go shame poor people into building their own toilets even when they have to take out loans that they can't afford, um, even when they are using equipment that is not durable and breaks down and creates a huge disaster. You can convince them to do that, right? And so the, the off the the initial success rates for this intervention were very, very high, right? And because it's so common in international development not to study the long-term implications of these mm. interventions, you didn't see what anthrop- like everybody probably listening to this podcast already knew was going to happen, which is that the toilets would be poorly built, right? They would break down, there'd be nobody to fix them. There would be horrible, enduring social consequences for people who couldn't afford to adhere to what became the socially accepted norm. And I'm not even sure that would be using the toilet, but maybe having a toilet, looking like you use a toilet, whatever, right? Um, and so ultimately, data started to come out that indicated that this was the case. But when I first saw it, I carried it over to Alex's office and I was like, oh my God, have you seen this? It's just like what's happening in obesity intervention, Mm. right? In in terms of turning around people's socially located suffering and blaming them and trying to use that um, as a low cost intervention, right? Or if not a low cost intervention, an intervention you can use to extract resources from the person who is receiving the intervention. Mm -hmm. So it's like the public health apparatus doesn't have to spend because you can shame and stigmatize someone into spending and spending and spending on exercise equipment and diet food and Mm -hmm. so forth. Um, And so that was when we were like, oh my gosh, we have to write a book about this. Not to take the focus away from obesity, uh, because we talked about it a good deal with Alex, but another part of your book that I think is highly relevant, especially to our audience and part of our academic series as well, is the stigmatization of mental health and seeking help for mental health. And I feel like there's a huge a nice long string connecting each and every single one of these things of you say that our efforts have largely failed. And by our, I mean the public health apparatus and destigmatizing and treating mental health, kind of your thoughts on why it has failed and maybe how we can move forward. So I think I'll invite Alex to jump in in a second, but I think mental health treatment is very different from sanitation and from obesity because that is a realm where people have known for a long time that stigma does harm. Right. Mm. And, and they've been trying a lot of different techniques to implement destigmatization versus in sanitation and obesity, where people are still trying to leverage stigma as a behavior change tool. Right. So, in a way, a men- mental health is a much better example to look at. But what we do know from looking at all these different destigmatization techniques that people have used, like renaming the disease or exposing people who don't have. Um, a mental health conditions people that do, that they don't work as well as you might think. That that stigma seems to be more durable than practitioners want and that we would hope. But I would say that you can see incredible progress on stigma over the last hundred years, 
and even over the last 50 years. So there, there is more of an uplifting story there. And I think Alex and I, after reading a huge amount of literature, kind of settled on the idea that activism and advocacy seem mm. to be the most effective forms of addressing stigma, which is a great story because it means that people who are carrying the burdens of stigma really should feel empowered to push back against it because I think it's the best way we have of, of decreasing stigma. Alex? Yeah, and you know, I'm not one that's normally impressed by st- celebrities and celebrity power, but this is what you do see that it's been enormously helpful to people in destigmatizing uh, mental health conditions and making people feel that they know and already accept. It makes it much easier to think about the mental health condition as not attaching all these other negative valences to it, right? Mm. So, you know, some of the people that have been, you know, Carrie Fisher, for example, is one of my big heroes. She was just completely honest from as soon as she was diagnosed about what it was to live with bipolar disorder and completely open about it uh, in a way that was, I think, really empowering for a lot, a lot of people. It opened a lot of conversations that couldn't happen before that. And you have, you know, quite a number of other celebrities that have been really, really helpful in this by self-revealing, actually, in ways that I, I wouldn't have expected until I really started looking at what all the options were and which ones seemed to have the most impact over time. But even when you look historically, you do see that stigmas come and go and come and go. For example, if we do a program sometimes where we go to London with students and look at the history of health in the city, London going back to medieval times, and you see that when there's a certain religious orientation where people are thinking about the relationship between people and God, and one way you have leprosy is kind of rises up, you get this sort of spikes in stigma and social exclusions, and then as kind of ideas about the nature of sin change, then the stigma goes down. So you can actually look back also and see these huge historic waves and stigma around specific conditions going up and down. So just because it goes down doesn't mean it can't go up again. Mm. Stigma can also be employed as a, a power lever. Sometimes people benefit greatly from the imposition of stigma. And whether you are uh, the, the massive weight loss industry, obviously, is one of the big winners right now. Big Pharma, obviously, mm. does very well out of this. But, you know, just in terms of governments and what they have to invest, change is based on these public ideas about who's worth investing in. So follow on to what Alex was saying as stigma uses a political tool. There is a section in the book where we write about how leprosy was leveraged in the colonization of Hawaii as a political tool. Hmm. And that's why I think it's important to point out that having high profile celebrities, for example, using advocacy is a tool, but that tool is most effective when it's linked in to a boots on the ground movement of activists who are seeking to shift political power. Right. So I would say advocacy in tandem with activism is very necessary. And so when we look at, you know, what are the most incredibly successful destigmatization campaigns? And we look, for example, at ACT UP and HIV. Right. Mm. We find that those activist communities are absolutely essential. Tease us a little bit with numerous forthcoming projects. Do tell. What, what are you working on next? Right. Once more into the fray. <laughs> so we have three forthcoming books is that correct amber together yeah yeah oh and then we have other ones yes that uh, that um amber has other projects as well so our together projects include we have one book that is coming out next year maybe with new york university press yes that is three-year ethnographic study in unnamed high-profile hospital system 
leading, nationally leading hospital system in which uh, we work with a fantastic ethnographer called Sarah Trainer to track the experiences of people going through weight loss surgery. And mm-hmm. he was talking about people with extreme body weights that lost large amounts of weight. And we were really interested in how stigma shifted for them as body weight came off. Um, both in terms of the experiences, their, their own experiences of stigma, you know, directed towards them, but also in terms of self-concepts of stigma. Um, and we found out it's a, it's not always um, a happy ever after story. And we kind mm-hmm. of delve into what that really means. And then the second book, Amber, do you want to take that one? I would love to. Yeah. And just to follow up on what Alex was saying about that one book, what's so interesting is that all these people that we worked with who underwent bariatric surgery, they're all like, I would do it again. Yes, it has changed my life to lose all this weight in really positive ways. But it's also true that the physical impacts of the surgery last forever. And that knowledge of what it means to make a social transition from being a highly stigmatized community to not is something that people can never shed, right? And that's mm. a fascinating part of the story. Okay, so the other book is one that is called Bad Info Cultures. And we are four ethnographers, five ethnographers working in four sites. So it's that same team of me and Alex and Sarah Trainer, who's at Seattle University, with two additional colleagues, Cindy Sertzerithran, who is a linguist at ASU and works in Japan, and Jessica Hardin. So we're um, looking at fat stigma, essentially, and, and the experience, the social construction of fat and diets um, in four communities that fall along a continuum from highly fat stigmatizing in Japan to, you know, historically characterized as fat loving and small. And so that's a project we have just finished. We've just put under review the first draft of the book. And that's forthcoming with Toronto University Press. The other book, which is taking up a huge amount of my time right now and has turned out to be a much more fun project than I ever imagined, is our effort to rethink introduction to anthropology. So we've been in a space working for a number of years to kind of shift anthropology into a very outward gaze in working on multiple collaborations with non-anthropologists, kind of what I've always referred to as transdisciplinary anthropology. And uh, we've got to the point of doing that for a number of years. And there's, there's a lot of us where we work at ASU working on the same sort of meta project of rethinking how anthropology is done in a forward thinking way. And we've kind of turned the lens a little bit inward again and thinking about well, what does that mean for designing and imagining and enacting um, a, a new form of anthropology that's much less insular and is part of a much wider conversation but still has a strong sense of self and we kind of decided maybe one of the best ways to do this was to go back to brass tacks and the brass tacks is introduction to anthropology so we actually mm. are working with a really fantastic fantastic team which includes Norton who are the largest independent publishing company in the U.S as a partner. So we have a linguistic anthropologist, Cindy Sturt-Streetheran, an archaeologist, Kelly Knudsen, a physical anthropologist, a biological anthropologist, as they are now, Christo Janowski, Amber is a cultural anthropologist, and me kind of as the integrative sort in the middle of all of those, to write a textbook. And it's kind of setting an agenda for what we, what we, where we think anthropology really needs to go to re-engage mm really positive way as a field I think you know there remains a lot of we think um, unnecessary worry and concern about what anthropology offers to the world as a major as a field as a scholarly inquiry so we're really trying to rethink you know what are the core values that we need to get to 
what does that look like? How can we present that in a way that's really um, accessible and meaningful for, for today's students? Because today's students, and I know, Karen, Chris, you both teach undergraduates, so you understand this, they are so different than students 10 years ago. And if you look at most of the anthro textbooks, basically being rewritten and rewritten and rewritten over a 30-year period, a lot of them are in their 15th, 16th, 17th edition. And the whole way that we view our field, our relationship with communities, our responsibilities to diversity, our role as activists has so changed in that time that we just decided it was time to just basically toss it, toss it out, start over fresh and rethinking. So it's turned into a, we meet every Friday, the five of us meet every Friday for three hours to write together. And it's turned into the most fun three hours a week. I am learning so much about a field that I thought I knew. Mm. It turns out I knew almost nothing because there's so much fun stuff to learn and that's become quite a highlight of a project. So I thought that was going to be something we were going to do very work day in the background, but it's kind of emerged as one of the most fun things we're working on for me. Amber, I don't know about you. I think, you know, we're in, in anthropology, we're in a moment of reckoning, right? Mm. And we're taking a serious look at um, some of the, our history and some of the practices that we inherited. And much of it is, is dark, right? And I think an important element of this project is that that's not our day-to-day experience in our lab and our group. We're really proud of the work that we're doing. We think we've figured out ways to engage with some of these historical difficulties that are really successful. We have a, an extremely diverse group and that's working. And so we, I think we're super excited about sharing that you know, we don't have to think about how anthropology could have an impact on the world. We are having an amazing impact and our students are doing incredible things. And so to just kind of, you know, share this new approach. I love hearing everything you just said because those are the exact reasons why I've entirely abandoned a textbook in my intro to bioanth class. And so I really do look forward to a textbook that does a much better job at covering the field today and what it does today in everyone's life. So that just sounds great. Um, This is all very, very inspiring. Since you both mentioned it as a fun thing that you've been doing, uh, we love ending our our interviews with what other fun things do you do? And it can be related to work, so work-life interaction is great, but what are you reading, watching, doing for fun, hobbies, whatever you might like to share with our audience? I want to be very honest with your audience, which is I have kids, I have two kids, and between the scholarship I'm doing and raising my family, that is all I do. When I was on the tenure track, my one life goal was to get tenure and not get divorced. And I was just so pleased that I achieved that. You know, and I'm kind of still in the same space. Those are the things that I care about and that's where I'm putting my time. And that's the thing is we want the honest answers because that's, I think, the most important thing for everyone listening to this podcast to hear. So thank you for being honest. So, and Amber's always said that her kids are a hobby. So she does have a hobby and it works really well for her. So I've got two kids as well. My kids are a little older than Amber's, a few years older. You know, my oldest is going off to college this year. Mm. So I've been able to, you know, I'm in the same situation as Amber. I was working really hard for many years and trying to really focus on the things that were most important to me and my family. Especially stepping out of administration a couple of years ago and suddenly, you know, some of the people that came out of grad school with me are starting to retire. Uh, luckily, I came out of grad school very young, so mm. I'm, not quite, I'm not near retirement age, but it kind of made me think maybe I need to be starting to work now so that 10 years from now or 15 years from now that I really have an easy transition from work, you know, at some point in my life, hopefully my husband will still be there and it'll be us, but the kids will be off in their lives and eventually I'll be going a bit potty. Amber will get sick of me or whatever happens. So 
I need to be thinking about rebalancing. So that's been a very, very active process for me in hmm. terms of, you know, now I actually read actively as part of a book club. Okay, so hmm. I do box on tape when I'm driving around, but you know, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. And I've started, you know, exercising every day. I do Pilates five days a week at a studio, which is the privilege of seniority and a full professor's salary, but that gives me a lot of balance. And just trying to think the other thing I'm really excited about, but I haven't learned how to do yet, is the notion of vacation and travel just for fun. I travel a lot, so does You Amber, do travel a lot. But, yeah. the, you know, the idea of like how to even design travel just for fun that isn't either work commitments or family commitments is something I aspire to and am working on actively so yeah for me I, like I think I'm just at a different slightly different life stage at Amber where I'm thinking I need to start laying some groundwork but I love my job and I like Amber you know I really enjoy family life as well and it is almost enough and I have these close friendships with people at work that make you know, that give you mm. that space where you can be yourself and say what you think and be frustrated and be in share joy that are so important to that work-life balance and I think I'm just super lucky that I get it at the office I've been in other jobs where I didn't where I really needed friends like really needed people outside of that environment because you know when you're in a toxic work environment you mm. get out. but if you're lucky enough to be around people you like all day I think it is easier to balance you getting joy on both sides it's also true that we overwork we we have to support each other and the other people in our squad in rebalancing all the time this is literally how we started the podcast before you both came on of i am totally sick because i have been overworking but we like what we do we don't have to be doing it so I, th- and I think that's a really good message. You're both living what we consider the dream in mm-hmm. terms of productivity, doing work you enjoy, working with students in constructive ways and, and valuing your, your family time. I can't, I can't think of a better life. We feel very, very lucky with the situation we're in in our lives. Very lucky indeed. Well, how can folks get a hold of you guys? I, obviously, they can go and buy your book. What a, If they want to apply to your grad program, send you a tweet. What is the way to get a hold of you if you care to be gotten a hold of? Yes, we, great question. So to turn it back to water, we are working very hard to build an international network of water scholars. The one that we have is National Science Foundation funded. Anyone can join. We welcome collaborators from anywhere. It's called the Household Water Insecurity Network. It has a website where you can sign up. We're also on Twitter all the time. The other thing that we have is a series in John Hopkins University Press for books that are about water. And so we would love for people to send us their proposals and we would love to publish their books. And then we are on Twitter. We have a blog on Psychology Today. Alex, what else do we want to say? This was the Christmas project, the Christmas break project. We both have our own websites now, alexbrewis.org and amberwoodage.org. So that's exciting. Amber's much more active on Twitter than I am. She's the social media maven. I... Being I'm a blogger. You love to blog. What's your Twitter handle? A Woodich. And Alex? You tweet every now and again. I have witnessed it. I'm You're Brewis underscore Alex. <gasps> yeah, because Amber actually set up my tw- Twitter account for me. That's why she knows. Well, we <laughs> want to thank you both for being such engaging guests, writing material that's easy to discuss, and for, for joining us for a nice, nice, fun, long interview today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks so much. This has been The Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara, and I'm one of the associate producers, Caroline Owens. This episode was made possible by the support of the American Journal of Human Biology and the Human Biology Association. Be sure to check out the American Journal of Human Biology special issue on water insecurity.
Please like us, rate us, share us, and let us know who you'd like to hear next. Thanks for listening.